Well, good morning, Lake Wooders. I just found out you had a new name, so I thought I'd practice on that. Isn't this a great day? Abraham, Abraham rejoiced in rainy days. Do you know how precious water is in Israel? This would be their last chance to top off the cisterns and prepare for nine months of no rain. Water is precious. Every time it rains in Israel, the Abrahams rejoice as God blesses us with provision. There are a lot of people in California who are going to have to start thinking like Abraham. It's Palm Sunday. The crowds have been shouting Hosanna, just as we sang here this morning. Whether in Aramaic or in Hebrew, the words are interesting. It means rescue I pray and rescue now. We're on the verge of Passover week. As the Jewish mind reflects back on a great rescue from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. Palm branches are being waved, which has come to symbolize Jewish nationalism when Jews govern Jews. And of course, Rome governs the land right now, so you can understand what they're saying with the palm branch. It's the rescue motif. And his name is Jesus as we know it, but to them it's Yeshua. And his Semitic word meaning means the Lord rescues. Jesus is the Lord's rescuer. And he has just come down through the Mount of Olives and through Gethsemane on a donkey, just like Solomon did a thousand years before, to be crowned king. And is he going to be crowned king today? And commence the rescue. They remember Zechariah 9.9, that your king will come on a donkey. Everything is coming together. There's a convergence here around the rescue motif. And Jerusalem is a tinderbox. It's ready to explode. His name is Yeshua. It means the Lord rescues. That's both the corporate dimension, and as many of us can testify here, it has a very personal dimension to being rescued as well. We are on verge of the most momentous week in all of history. Jesus is about to finish up and complete the earthly phase of his rescue and restoration mission that he announced one Shabbat morning in Nazareth in his hometown synagogue in front of friends and family when he read from a cut-and-paste version of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 where he proclaimed freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. Those are all rescue motifs. And to preach good news to the poor, that you can indeed be rescued and restored. So I thought it would be good on the eve of Passion Week to remind ourselves again why Yeshua, the Lord's rescuer, came. And as I think about the rescue motif, I'm brought back to one of my favorite passages of rescue in the Gospels, and that's the rescue of the demoniac in Luke 8. And I want to take us here this morning because I want to identify us with him. I want you to identify yourself with this demoniac because as you ponder and meditate and contemplate through Passion Week, 
which we are now on the doorstep of, I want you to become that demoniac and relive your rescue in the midst of Passion Week. As Jesus pays the ultimate price for your rescue and our restoration. Well, like any time we engage the Scriptures, we need some context. So let's put a little bit of that in place here. Um, We're going to be in the northern part of the country, up around the Sea of Galilee. By the way, it's not a sea. It's a lake. I'm a Michigander. You're Minnesotans. But we all know that something's 13 miles long and 7 miles wide is not a sea. It's a lake. Okay, Nice size lake, to be sure. We're going to be about 3 o'clock, if we view this lake as a a clock arrangement here, where the golden arrow is pointing. Take a little closer look at this. Uh, We're going to be leaving from Capernaum, which is up in the northwest quadrant here. It's where the observant Jews live. This little triangle right here, by the way, from Chorazin to Capernaum to Bethsaida is two miles by five by seven miles, that little triangle is where Jesus spent 60% of his ministry. Very small piece of real estate. And we're going to be traveling to Gargasa over here, where the golden arrow is. We're going to be sailing like this. And here's a different picture. This represents the geopolitical regions around the Sea of Galilee. It's actually quite diverse. That's why we always want to know where we are when we deal with Jesus. Up here in the northwest corner, this this part of the red-pink area here is observant Judaism. Those are the religious Jews. Down in here, this is where the Hellenistic Jews live, Jews who are trying to have it both ways. They go to Shabbat on uh, the Sabbath, um, but... They go to all the delights of the Greco-Roman world the rest of the days of the week. Okay, They're Hellenistic Jews. We have Hellenistic Jews up here in Golanitis as well. And this area in green is called the Decapolis, Deca from 10. Polis is Greek for city, the 10 cities. This is what remains from the Greek empire, Macedonian city-states that Alexander the Great brought into this land as part of his subjugation strategy starting in 332 B.C. This is the last residue of that. They're all congregated down in here. And uh, this is the world of hedonism. That's what Greco-Roman living is like. If it looks good, touch it. If it tastes good, eat it. If it feels good, do it. Go right ahead. It's hedonism. This is viewed by an observant Jew over here as the world of evil. Satan is the chief operating officer of the Decapolis. And an observant Jew is forbidden from setting foot on Decapolis land. That's going to factor into our story. And here's a, a picture taken from the south of our Sea of Galilee and shows us where we're going to be sailing up here from Capernaum, sailing mostly east, to this a particular promontory point of land here at Gergesa. Those of you who've been to Israel, Kersi is what uh, the name of it is these days. We're going to be leaving here from Capernaum. Uh, we might well be in uh, one of Simon Peter's fishing boats, you know, up here on the shore. That's his house, by the way, underneath that Roman Catholic church right there. 
And we're going to the Decapolis. Now, this is not Gergesa. This is Gadara, one of the other ten cities. I don't have a good picture of Gergesa, but I have a good picture of Gadara here. You can see the Sea of Galilee in the background here, the southern end. And I just want to get you the feel of a Greco-Roman city, 15,000, 20,000 people, full of temples to all kinds of gods with all sorts of liturgies, including ritual prostitution, Theaters, baths, amphitheaters, circuses, it's ESPN, it's entertainment. That's Rome's strategy for keeping people under control. Keep them so entertained they don't have time to think about how bad you're governing them. Some things haven't changed, have they? Okay, um, I was in Israel a month ago with 30 people on another one of our contextual immersion study programs. And uh, that particular time, I arranged for us to take an eight-in-the-morning eight boat ride across the Sea of Galilee to exactly where we're going to go in this story, okay? And this particular morning, it was gray and overcast. It really had that sort of right atmospheric feeling as we were going to the other side. And I actually get to teach this particular encounter of Jesus in this boat as we're traveling across. It's a fun experience. Well, this is where we're heading. This is the only piece of real estate geologically speaking, that flows off the north-south ridge here, which is the Golan Heights, and comes due west down to the Sea of Galilee in a very gentle slope, because I want you to envision this is where 2,000 boars are going to come running down and drown in our story. Underneath the arrow here, you probably can't discern it, but there are a number of caves right in here. And I want you to envision that's where our demoniac lives, in caves which are also tombs. Now, there still are boars. We're not talking about pigs as we understand them, but they're really boars. Uh, There are three of them here uh, running down the side of the Sea of Galilee. This is a contemporary picture. They still do that. But you need to envision 2,000 of these boars running down that hillside and drowning into the sea. And by the way, a boar has a great girth, which gives it natural buoyancy, Boars are known as very good swimmers. The fact that any of them drown is spectacular. So when 2,000 of them drown, it's really something that speaks to the Gergesenes. This is the kind of boat we're going to be using. It's called the Trammel Boat. It's the largest boat used in the first century. It's 27 foot long. It's um, 7 foot across and about 4 foot deep. Okay, It's a multi-person boat. We're probably going to be doing two of these boats for Jesus and the disciples. Um, that's a reasonably sized boat, but when you put it within the context of what a storm looks like on the Sea of Galilee, it's not that big of a boat. This is a daytime storm. Um, Back here, we're seeing the Golan Heights again, and um, we have an equivalent kind of geological formation on the other side. The, The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and it's really like a big cereal bowl. And so we get wind inversions. You know, you have prevailing westerlies during the day, but then you get inversions and you have prevailing easterlies at night. When the easterlies are particularly strong, they come down the slopes here uh, for the Golan Heights. It's like a cereal bowl. It's like a wind tunnel, and they create very vicious storms within 15 minutes, six- and seven-foot waves. This is a daytime storm. Imagine a midnight storm where you can hardly see. That's going to be part of our story. We are dealing with demon possession here. Demon possession is not that unusual in countries 
bordering on Israel. Um, Early on in the tradition of America, the Catholic families would always dedicate the first son to be a priest for the church, you know. Well, there's kind of a similar thing here in certain demonic uh, areas. They'll give their first child to the demons for possession. So this man, whose name we do not know, nor whose age we do not know, could well have been demonic-possessed for a couple decades. This is a coin from the British Museum. It's from the first century. Uh, it's from Israel. And you notice, if you can discern the insignia here, there's an L with an X and an F that stands for the Legionnaire 10th Force, the Roman 10th Legion under Pompey, is who conquered this land in 63 B.C. and who currently is keeping the lid on this land at the time of Jesus. And interestingly enough, their symbol is the boar. So there's sort of a prophetic statement that Jesus is going to be making also when 2,000 boars die. So late one afternoon, as we pick up our text, Jesus says, get in the boats. Guys, we're going to the other side. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift it is to open up your word. And thank you for the incredible gift of your word and your Holy Spirit who authored each and every word in it. We pray that he will be with us today in power to speak to us, to touch us, and perhaps even for some to rescue us through the power of what we see our Lord Jesus Christ saying and doing. So journey with us, we pray. Anoint our time so that we can learn more about our Savior and deepen our thanksgiving and our gratitude as well as our commitment to be ever more like him. We pray this in his name, meaning we pray in his authority, and we say amen. Join me, if you will, in Luke 8. Starting in verse 22, I'm going to read um, this a little bit more expansively here, sort of bringing context to it by implication. It was one of those days, one of those days of healing and teaching and teaching and healing, at the end of which Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus did not say, let's go to the Decapolis. He's an observant Jew. Jews are taught not to say that word. It makes you ritually unclean. So you develop code words, if you're an observant Jew, to communicate without saying the forbidden words. The other side is the code phrase for the Decapolis. At that moment in time, there's a crisis with the disciples. They know full well they're forbidden from going to the other side. And yet they're disciples of Rabbi Yeshua, and they have to do what the rabbi says. And I've often wondered, they've been exposed to a lot of difficult, mind-stretching stuff. Touching lepers, healing paralytics, calling a tax collector to join the band. One of the things we miss when we don't quite see all the contextual implications of what Jesus is doing is being a disciple of Jesus is to be in shock therapy on a daily basis. 
Because Jesus is detoxing these disciples from everything their observant Judaism has taught them to be right and true. And sometimes words aren't sufficient to do detoxing. you got to have an experience that creates such dissonance that it causes you to finally revisit your paradigms and be open to another view. And Jesus knows that he has to detox these disciples from everything that observant Judaism has done to them if they're ever going to be freed up to see, let alone fall passionately in love with the kingdom of God. Okay, That's his pedagogy. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And so here's another one. After a day of teaching and healing, healing and teaching, getting into the boats, we're going to the other side, and I can just about imagine Simon and Andrew and John saying, not another one of these out-of-the-box experience. Is this time for an intervention with Yeshua? Do we have to say, come on? I mean, there's just certain things we can't do. Well, no, that'd be our Western way of thinking, but these are Middle Eastern people. Like it or not, this is what their rabbi says they're going to do, so they're going to do it. But are they happy campers? No. So they got into a boat, a trammel boat, and they set out, sailing southeast. And as they sailed, I, I figure with normal winds, it's about a six-hour sail as you tack back and forth to do southeast here to get to Gergesa. A violent storm came suddenly down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. These are guys who know how to handle a storm. The disciples went and woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Why did they take so long to go to Jesus? Why did they have to face death before they were going to willing to bring him into this scene? Sometimes we can trust our competencies far too long, can we not? When we should set them aside and go straight to Jesus. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind. Fascinating word. That Jesus has no need to rebuke nature. He created it. So what's really going on here? We'll unpack that in a moment. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided. The wind stopped and the waves became calm. Those of you who live on the many lakes around here know that once a wave gets created, it keeps going until it hits the shore. This is kind of miraculous. Suddenly, huge waves go flat. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And they continued to sail to the region of the Gergesenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now let me jump over to Mark 4, where there's a parallel treatment of this same encounter. And picking up more, uh, Mark 4.35, that day when evening came, so this gives us a better time of reference here, He's, uh, they're going to be sailing in the dark. He said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, interesting phraseology, in the boat, just as he was is an idiomatic phrase that means now. Not ASAP. Now. Get in the boats now. No time to get a snack. 
No time to leave a note for the family, okay? Get in a boat and get in a boat now. So you're a disciple. You've been standing and watching Jesus teach and heal for eight hours. You think you're about ready to punch out for the day. And Jesus says, get in a boat and get in a boat now. How are we doing, disciples? Happy campers? Looking forward to this? Welcome to the world of making disciples. All right. So we're reluctant participants in this journey. We set out. Sun sets. Darkness comes upon the lake. We're doing a reasonably good job of tacking, and suddenly this violent storm comes along. To such an extent that we're convinced we're going to die. Seasoned fishermen are convinced they're going to die. And so they go and get Jesus. And this brings us to Jesus' question, where's your faith? Is it faith that Jesus has control over nature? No, that can't be the question because with the great catch of fish in Luke 5, they know that Jesus has command over nature. There's something else going on here. These Jewish young men, probably ages 17 to 20, by the way, have memorized most, if not all, of their Old Testament scriptures in the way the Jewish educational system worked from ages 3 to 13 when you're bar mitzvahed. The issue in Scripture never is for a Jew, what does the Bible say? They all know what it says. The issue is, what does it mean? And that's the role of the rabbi, to tell you what it means. They know Hosea 12.1, which makes reference to the evil empires and the wicked winds from the east. They're sailing southeast. They're going to a land that they know they're forbidden to go to. They know it's Satan's territory. They expect resistance. And they see the wind as a demonic wind. It's called a remez. It's a hearkening back to something that everyone knows to be true from the Scripture and for which no further explanation is needed. It's a very common rabbinic teaching technique. There are verbal remez and there are action remez. This is an action remez. They see it as a demonic wind. You see, they were not with Jesus in the 40 days when he established his authority over the adversary. They weren't there. They don't know about that. And they know that they're going to the land of the adversary. They expect resistance. The showdown in the OK Corral is being framed here. And they don't know who's going to win. They don't know who's going to prevail. That's the nature of the faith question here. Don't you know I have authority over the adversary? With one word in one second, I can banish he and the consequences of his acts. No, they don't. So they're terrified the nature of their faith question. Well, maybe it's midnight, one in the morning. You're supposed to sail the other side, but now there's no wind. Grab the oars, guys, and start pulling. Isn't it interesting how Jesus gets us involved in ministry after a while, one way or another? So they start pulling which means they got their back towards the shore that they're going to. And they're pulling and they're pulling. And quietly at first, and then in increasing volume and intensity, they start to hear shrieks and screams. What's going on? And they get closer and closer, and then they start 
stealing a look over their shoulder, and they see the outline, the silhouette of a person. Then they get a little closer to the shore, and they realize he's naked. And then they see the, the caves in the background, which may well be tombs. And the implications of ritual impurity are just piling up for these guys. I'm forbidden to set foot on the land. I can't observe a naked person, even just to see his ankle. I'm forbidden to get too close to tombs. What is going on here? We can't do this. And it has consequences because read, look carefully here. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, the disciples didn't step ashore. They stayed in the boat. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man, a man from town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. The ritual purification implications of this to an observant Jew are immense. Let me pick up Mark's description of this man, whose name we do not know. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Imagine a person who's naked and is just full of scar tissue. Layers and ripples of it. Some of them are recent enough that blood is oozing down the limbs. If you look closely enough, there's also some pussy ones that are oozing out. I'm not sure there has ever been a more unattractive human being than this one. In the eyes of this culture, both the Decapolin culture and I suspect observant Jews as well, this is a sub, 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 sub human being. And you know what? God's heart beats for him. You talk about incredible love that knows no limits and knows no bounds. Here it is. We're going to sing a song at the end of this message here, Love Lifted Me. Watch the lifting that love is about to do. Put yourself in the body, in the mind, in the spirit of this demoniac. It's two in the morning. You see boats coming towards you. You can discern them in the ambient moonlight. They beach, but only one person gets out of the boat. And your initial reaction is, have things gotten so bad that even boats are coming at two in the morning to harass me? to despise me, to ridicule me, to mock me. And that lone person approaches closer and closer. I don't know how many feet it took, maybe 20 foot away, depends on the ambient light. But suddenly the demoniac realizes that this person has facial hair. It's a Jew. What in the world is a Jew doing here at 2 in the morning? How bad can it get? But then he realizes that this Jew has come 
to contend for him, to fight for him, to be on his side. What an incredible thought that must have been. Because freeze that thought for a moment, okay? Imagine what it's like to be a demoniac. Nobody wants you. Nobody likes you. No one sees one ounce of value in who you are. You are utterly and totally alone, and you don't belong anywhere. You know, somebody once said, home is that place where when you show up, they have to take you in. Uh Uh-uh, not true here, okay? I mean, what does that do to your soul? After 5, 7, 10, 15 years of living that way, how shriveled can a soul get? And whenever people see you, they turn their backs and leave as fast as they can. They want nothing to do with you. They see you as offensive. It's like you don't exist. You're the transparent person. You have no friends. No one has touched you, perhaps, in a decade to hug you or caress you. Remember in Eastern Europe, oh, 30, 40 years ago, they began to discover these orphanages where the kids were put in cribs and then never touched? They actually call it the failure to thrive syndrome. There's an adult version of that. And this guy's got a PhD in it. And then he realizes there's something different about this particular Jew, this particular person. He has come to fight for him. He has come to rescue him. And what were his thoughts as the back and forth takes place between the legion of demons? Legion is, there are 4,800 Roman legionnaires in a Roman legion. I'm not sure there are 4,800 demons in him, but there's many more than one. On the Richter scale of demonic possession, which may go from 0 to 10, this is a 13.5. This is off the scale. Who would win? Who would prevail? He gets the negotiation, and finally he hears that the demons are willing to leave him if Yeshua will let him go in to the boars. And 2,000 boars go streaming down that geological formation into the Sea of Galilee and drown. Now, frame of reference here, on the other side of the lake in Judea, if you're a family that have five sheep, you're considered well off. If you're a village with 100 sheep, you're considered very prosperous, Okay. 2,000 boars probably just wrecked 25% of the agricultural GNP of the Gergesene region. It's not trivial. Verse 34 in, in Luke 8, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. That I understand. And the people went out to see what had happened. That I understand too. And when they came to Yeshua, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet. That's the posture of a disciple. Dressed. Whoa, where'd the clothes come from? Another miracle. I can guarantee you there was not an armoire of clothes waiting to be used in one of those caves for this event. 
dressed then in his right mind. You see, Jesus just doesn't rescue us. That's simply where it starts. He also then finishes it with restoration. Yes, the exorcism had taken place, but now he's fully dressed, socially acceptable, and in his right mind, fully restored. That's the way it is with Jesus. It's rescue and restore. Then those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and you expect everyone would, would break out in praise, right? In wonder, in awe. Then all the people of the Gergesenes asked Jesus to leave them. Get out of Dodge. We don't want you here. You're too disruptive. You just messed with our GNP. Who cares that one incredible person has gotten rescued and restored? Materialism is awesomely destructive. So Jesus got in the boat and left. The man who, from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow, if I were him, make me a Siamese twin attached to your leg for the rest of my life, Yeshua. I don't ever want to leave your sight. You are so awesome. I am so grateful. I will praise you every hour of every day. Just let me be with you. Jesus said, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Did you get the juxtaposition? Tell him what God has done. I'm going to tell him what Jesus has done. Why? Because Jesus is God to him. Get the picture. Hey, you all going into the temple. Remember me? How's the guy out in the tombs? With the shackles, remember? They kept breaking. I'm back. And I'm fully restored. Let me tell you how it happened. His name is Yeshua. And one night at two in the morning, he came and rescued me and fully restored me as well. You knew me before. Look at what Jesus did in my after. It doesn't take him two minutes to tell the story. Everybody knew the before. He just has to tell them the after. Whoa, you going into the temple. Can I tell you my story? Hey, whoa, you guys going into the the gymnasium, the Roman baths. Can Can I tell you my story? Before you get into the amphitheater, can I tell you my story? He told his story so persistently and so often that when Jesus comes back several months from now in Mark 8, it's the feeding of the 4,000. All who came to see Jesus because they heard the story of this rescued demoniac. There is the first missionary of the New Testament. And all he did was tell his story. Right? Are you telling your story? I can tell you, each of you as well as I have a rescue story and a restoration story. Are you telling it as your first order of business or is this the last thing you might get around to if circumstances seem to be kind of, you know, just right? What an amazing story. What an amazing rescue. What an amazing restoration. Let's finish up with some observations. Those of you that are familiar with Preserving Bible Times know that this is one of our favorite frameworks. We call it the five storylines of Scripture. In a nutshell, there are only five themes that permeate all of the Scriptures. 
It's what we learn about God, who he is and what, how he does things and what he cares about. It's where we learn about God's adversary, who he is and what he cares about. It's where we learn about the nature and character of mutiny and consequences of mutiny. It's where we learn about the nature and character of the human condition, and it's where we learn about God's plan of rescue and restoration. There are no other macro themes of Scripture. This is really helpful because if you want to ask five questions of any passage, here are your five questions. This will get you more miles per gallon out of Bible study and your quiet times and your meditation times than about anything else that I know of, all right? So let's just do a a high-speed run-through here. What have we just learned about God? Who He is, what He cares about, and how He does things. Well, we learned here that his heart beats for those whom society has discarded. And it immediately raises the question, is that how our hearts beat? We learned here that rescuing and restoring one person is worth whatever it takes. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. The hound of heaven still stalks the human soul. Here we see it a great case history. We learned here that God is surprising and unpredictable. Is there room in your expectations for God to surprise you? We learned here also that his disciples can't manage him. And that should help us in the way we pray. Don't don't try and pray prayers that manage God. We learn here that he doesn't give up on his disciples when they fail a faith test and then later decide to stay in the boat. Hallelujah. Or we'd all have a lot more rebukes in our lives, wouldn't we, for the times we've elected to stay in the boat. Because it just seemed like it was getting a little too messy to stay close to Jesus. We learn that he has authority over his adversary. One word, one nanosecond, it's over, it's vanished. He's neutralized. Relax. Jesus is in control. And he knows what he's doing. We learn that his time frame is not our time frame. If it were up to us, we're never quite ready yet, are we, for a faith test or a journey. We need to read a few more books and uh, have a little more rest, and then we might be prepared. Most of what Jesus tends to do, by the way, it seems that when his disciples aren't ready. And we learn here that none can stay his hand. The fullness of time set before time began is due for this demoniac, and none can stay God's hand. What have we learned about God's adversary? His aim is to destroy human lives. And if that doesn't work, to be so disruptive that they're isolated, removed, cast off. We've learned here that God's adversary will try to hijack nature to keep Jesus' offensive plan from unfolding. If you're going to go on the offense for Jesus, be prepared for an east wind to blow. And when you survive the east wind, don't relax. He's got a plan B. 2,000 boars to drown. We learn here about God's adversary, that he ruins things, and then he points to God as the causative factor. My friends at the Washington Post are into this one in a big way. What have we learned about the nature and character of consequences of mutiny? 
Well, staying in the boat, disciples, is a subtle form of keeping the mutiny going. That 2,000 boars are more important than one incredibly rescued and restored human being. Materialism is a god. It is an idol worshipped by many. And oftentimes materialism trumps human lives. Because materialism itself is a form of the mutiny. We've made something more important than God himself. What have we learned about the nature and character of the human condition? Well, my goodness, we certainly don't have any problem marginalizing people who are not like us, do we? And the more they're not like us, the easier it is to marginalize them. Witness people with disabilities. I have a special needs son who's 40 years old. I've seen it in the family of God. Because our hearts need to beat like God's hearts beat for people with disabilities. They can often be the invisible people in our midst. We learn about the human condition here that we can easily lean too much and too long on our own resources, our own competencies, our own strengths, our own abilities, rather than going straight to Jesus and simply saying, help me, help me. We really need to be like three-year-old kids who can't tie their shoes. And they come to mommy and daddy and say, help me. The human condition, we learn some more things, that we have a fear of getting into messy situations that can cause us to stay in the boat when Jesus calls us to come and be with him on these rescue and restoration missions. And finally, what have we learned about God's plan of rescue and restoration? Well, it's centered in the person, power, and presence and word of Jesus Christ. We've learned here that God's plan of rescue and restoration starts with rescue, doesn't end there. Rescue is a tactic. Restoration is the end game, the purpose. And that can often shape the way we pray. Interesting. Let me just take 30 seconds on that one. When there's a crisis that shows up, I think too often the prayers we pray are crisis prayers. Consider, if you will, also praying restoration prayers. Yes, we want to pray that some immediacy will happen, you know, that they can get out of jail quickly or bond will be posted or, you know, da-da-da-da, whatever the deal is, okay? But at the same time, put a restoration picture in your mind. Well, what would it look like if this thing got fully restored back in a holistic way, you know? Would it be three people hugging and crying together with tears of joy? I don't know what the restoration picture would look like. But whatever it is, hit print screen in your mind and say, Lord, that's my prayer too. Don't just pray prayers of rescue. Consider praying prayers of restoration. God's plan of rescue and restoration involves remaking our paradigms, disciples. Disciples are people who are having their paradigms remade. And if you want to resist it, then God's going to pulverize your paradigm. He's going to rip it out of your hands. Because unless we get detoxed from what this culture has done to us, and sometimes even what our religious community has done to us, we're never freed up to fall in love with, to see and embrace passionately the kingdom of God. Disciples are people who are being detoxed, who are being remade, who are having their paradigms and their worldview reshaped to be kingdom paradigm. Heaven's view resonating with God's heart.
We've also learned here about God's plan of rescue and restoration is he wants to involve us in it. He wants us to share our story. Can you share your story in three minutes or less? When's the last time you did that? I guarantee you there's a dark world out there that's hurting, lost, and desperate. They need to hear your story. Isn't it amazing what one person telling her story did? 4,000 people came to see Jesus. And so a closing perspective as we move into Passion Week. Are our hearts harmonic with God's hearts? You know, will alignment is the hardest thing to do. Are you praying for will alignment? Do you want will alignment? What does James tell us? You have not because you ask not. And who are the marginalized people in your world? Who are the people you tend to shy away from? Who are the people you really wish you didn't have to visit? Do you need to revisit your attitude, your perspective, the nature and character of your own heart? Be something to ponder. Jesus went to the cross for all people, even demoniacs. To what extent are we telling our stories? And since Passion Week is about rescue, the rescue motif, the restoration motif, take some time this week to ponder your rescue story, your restoration story, which is still ongoing, for he who has begun a good work within you will indeed bring it to completion on that day. Hallelujah. He's going to the cross to rescue you. But it doesn't stop at rescue. He has an incredible restoration plan for each and every child in his kingdom. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for this time.